Good morning, church. That was not bad. The weather has made us in a good mood. I love it. Well, welcome. Um, How many of you consider yourself to be a practical, kind of hands-on kind of person? Four of us. Okay. Well, um, you'll like this. So we're, we're turning a corner this morning in our time together in Ephesians. So um, up to this point, we've been looking at uh, the book of Ephesians. We've been walking through it. And I just kind of want to get us caught up on where we've been. Uh, so, uh, by the way, if you ever miss anything, all of the, the messages that come from our church are online. And so you can kind of walk through Ephesians with us if you have missed any. But let me get us caught up. I don't want you to feel like you're walking midway into a movie and wondering what is happening right now. All right, so we started our, our, our series, our time in Ephesians by talking uh, about Paul presents us with this beautiful, amazing, spectacular theology that, that we are adopted, forgiven, redeemed, that it's been God's plan for us from the beginning of time. And not only that, but God has a plan for you. And that plan also was from the beginning of time. So, so great news right off the bat for us. And then from then we talked about what's our response supposed to be to that? And so we talked about our response being worship. And why does that matter? It, it's because we don't serve our Savior kind of begrudgingly. Like we're not just kind of um, emotion, emotionlessly doing a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, your, your relationship with Jesus should never be able to be boiled down into a set of rules. The gospel says, no, that, that's not. We serve and follow a, a God because of our affection for him and our desire for him. And that comes out of our attitude of worship. So from there, we looked at what, call, what Paul calls the mystery of Christ. And the mystery of Christ is that all people... All peoples through Jesus have access to the Father. Not just all people have access, but but all peoples have equal access to the Father through, through Jesus Christ. And we talked about the magnitude of this because for centuries there was this division that took place between Jew and Gentile, but now through Christ that's gone. We talked about what that looks like when, when diverse people become united in Christ, right? That's the mystery of Christ. And and because of that, the church is cross-cultural. The church is cross-cultural. The church is diverse. And the world looks at the church and they see the way we love each other and they know something is different there. In a world of, of division, hostility, they can look at the church and say there's something different there, and because of that, they will be pointed to Jesus, right? So that's what we talked about, and and this theology is just absolutely beautiful because no matter who you are or where you come from, your background, hear me, you fit perfectly in the church. You fit perfectly in the church. More than that, you fit perfectly in this church, no matter who you are, where your background, and that's because of the gospel. That's because of the good news of of Jesus. now this morning, uh, we're going to turn the corner. So last week we talked about we want to we want to not just know about it, but we want to know it. Well, this morning what we're going to do is we're turning the corner and we are going to look at this extremely practically. Because all of that is true, what should it 
do for us? What's the application? Uh, So theology to practice this morning. Theory to application, knowing to doing. So in essence, here's the question. Since this is true, since the body of Christ is diverse and unified, since that is true, now what? So that's the question. Now what? We're going to look at the now what question. In fact, the first uh, word of our text this morning is therefore, which means because of all of that. So Paul is answering the now what question. We'll look at verse verse 1, chapter 4 together. And before we do, though, if you're here and you do not have a Bible, uh, I want the privilege of giving you one. Uh, We have a table of Bibles in the back, and if you don't have a Bible, listen, there there are no strings attached. You don't need to give us information. You don't need to do anything. Just walk, grab it, Taken home with you. That's why they're there. That's why we're there. We believe it is so important at Stone Oak that, that every week when we teach, for you to have the confidence that it's not coming from a personal agenda, it's not coming from me, but that you can actually see it. That you can actually see it because this is our authority. And so we believe it's important. And so if you haven't taken advantage of it and you do not have a Bible, you do now. It's on that table, okay? So make sure, make sure to grab one. So let's look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner, the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have received. So Paul says, therefore, and we've said this all the time, whenever you're looking at a, at a scripture and it starts with therefore, there's a dumb question that we need to ask ourselves. What is the therefore, therefore, Right? What is the therefore, therefore? What's it pointing back to? It's like if you were to pick up um, a letter that I wrote to my wife, a long romantic letter. I do these all the time. I'm only saying this because she's not in the room and she can't be laughing at me right now. But imagine if I wrote her a three-page love letter and you were to pick it up and open to page two, go three-quarters of the way down and find a sentence that said something like, now because of all of that, I love you. Now, if you were to read that, what would it make you do? Well, I need to know what came before this, right? It's the same thing here. Whenever you see a therefore, it should, it should trigger. There's something before this. There's a reason that it's there. Um, and so what we've talked about so far is Paul says, because of the gospel, because all people are one in Christ, because Jesus gave himself so that all people can come to the Father, because of that, therefore, he says, I urge you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So here's the question before we go any further. What is the calling? What is the calling? We're going to define it uh, like this. Um, The calling is the call of God for a sinner to become one in Christ and one in the body of Christ. So the call of God for a sinner to become one in Christ and one in the body of Christ. That's what we need to see when it says calling. So in other words, this call is, is to the body of Christ. It's to the family of God. It's to, it's to the church. Um, it's a beautiful calling. It's that calling. I was once dead. I was once lost. And God called me. That's the calling we're talking about. The calling from, from death to life, lost to child. That's the calling. Here's what it is not. Paul is not talking about what we're going to call a specialized calling. This is why I put this up here. Uh, A specialized or a special calling. Uh, Here's what I mean when I say that. Every pastor 
missionary, mission worker, hopefully most of us in this room, uh, when you have something that God's put on your heart specifically, we use this word call. For example, I feel God has called me to be a pastor, and it's a calling, okay? That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about like in Isaiah 6, when God says, he looks at this people and he says, who can go for me? Who will, who will I send? They're not going to hear you, but who will go for me? And Isaiah, in Isaiah 6 says, here I am, Lord, send me. And that was Isaiah's specialized call. That was a call of God on his life. And again, that's not what Paul is talking about. And here's why it matters. It's, if you're a Christian this morning, this is talking to you. Paul is talking to you. He's not talking to a group of specialized or elite Christians who have specialized... No, no, no. If you're a Christian, he is talking to you. He is talking to all those who he has called to himself through Christ. So we're going to do something real awkward. See a lot of new faces, and I'm sorry. Turn to the person beside you and say, Paul's talking to me. Well done. Well done. I know you probably don't know the person beside you. That's, that's okay. Paul's talking to them too. Um, and he says this. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Let's be honest. This is a huge statement. And in my opinion, it's potentially depressing. It's potentially depressing. Here's why. How in the world can you be worthy of the calling? So Paul just spent the bulk of his letter just explaining how beautiful, how perfect the calling of God on our life is, where Jesus gave himself, brought us to him. And he just paints this beautiful picture of the calling of God being so perfect, so beautiful. And now he goes, now live up to that. Live worthy of that. Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm the only one here. Um, I don't do that very well. And so if that were the only message, we could leave here feeling pretty discouraged. The question is, what is Paul really telling us? Uh, to live worthy of the calling, what is he really telling us? Well, let's first remember who's Paul, who Paul is talking to. So this is the church, like we said, the church in the city of Ephesus. This church historically did not feel like they fit. They were a bunch of Gentiles stepping into the faith of the Jews, and they didn't feel like they fit. Which, by the way, have anyone ever been in that place? Where you walk into a, a church or a group of people and you say, I don't fit. They do things differently. Um, if maybe you're here and you're, you're new in the faith. Maybe you're here and you're just, you're just here seeking. Maybe you feel that way right now. I am sorry if you do. But you just feel like, I don't quite, I can't puzzle it together. I don't quite fit. We know a little bit then of how this church felt. Feeling as though they were maybe a little bit of an outsider to the church. And so the first part of this letter, what Paul does is he reminds them of their worth and their value in Jesus, that we are all one in him. Which, by the way, that's a reminder to us as well. Reminding us of our worth and our value in Jesus, that we're one in him. And now Paul says... I want you to just live out that calling. Walk that calling. In other words, even though you feel like you may not fit church, even though you feel that way, you do. 
In Christ, you fit perfectly. And as such, now, church, we get to walk in it. So here's the question. How, what does that look like? Let's continue on. Verse 2. Paul says, With all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, we're going to pick this apart for a bit before we do. Let me make a quick kind of no-brainer observation. So we have humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other in love. What do all those have in common? You can't do them alone. They're not solo jobs. They're not solo, uh, solitary jobs. They're communal. They're meant to be done together. So right off the bat, walk in a manner worthy of the calling is not a call to you to go home alone and fix yourself. And once you get it worked out, once you get it fixed, come back and then you're going to be okay. No, 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 no. The call here is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, which means it implies community. The call is to community, and it cannot be done without the body of Christ. You can't get around it. And so as a Christian, it's, it's uh, impossible to reject that you need community because it it's kind of goes with the, the calling. You're called to God, and you're called to each other. And it, 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 this walk it out thing happens in the context of, of community. I think of it like this. Um, I think of marriage as, as God's great gift of sanctification. And what I mean by that is I thought it was awesome before marriage. I thought I was pretty cool. And then when there's something funny happens when you spend, when you're in an intimate community with another person, all of those, those things in yourself just have a way of popping up. Popping up. If you're married, you kind of know what I'm saying. Like, you never thought that you had maybe, you know, jealousy or, you know, um, if you were like unhealthily an introvert, you never even knew it. And then you get married and you realize, okay. <laughs> and God uses that to bring it to the surface. Well, that's kind of the same thing that happens in the church community in a way that you can, it's really easy to be awesome when you're alone. You know, I don't struggle with strife when I'm alone. If you do, it's a little creepy, but you typically don't do that. But the moment you step in community, that's when all of those things come to the surface. And so this is a communal walk, and let's look at how we're supposed to do it. Let's start with the first ones, with all humility and gentleness. So let's start with the easy ones, right? Um, C.S. Lewis, I love this quote. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. It's just a brilliant, brilliant quote. So humility is a countercultural message. It's a countercultural message. The world tells you that humility can be weakness, that, it, it, that you need to think of yourself first, that you need to have pride, right? That's, that's the, the, the narrative that we get. And the, the, the Bible says humility lets us look beyond ourselves to see others the way God sees them. And that is huge in the context of community. So I want us to think about Jesus, right? which I know is a huge shocker since you're in church right now. We're going to think about Jesus on this. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, greatest example of humility uh, this world has ever known. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, that's Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and be, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus had every right. Every right. He had every right. He would have been completely in the right to have put an end to all of it. Like that. He could have put an end to all of it, and he would have been right in doing so. He is God. He is king. He has all the characteristics of God. All powerful, perfect, holy, pure. That's Jesus. And he had every right to stop all of the, the madness, but he didn't. He, he didn't. Instead, he humbled himself, the text says. Meaning, he didn't think less of himself. Um, he didn't stop being God. He didn't in that moment become less God. No, 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 no. It was that in that moment, he looked beyond himself, beyond his rights, beyond all of that, and he humbled himself thinking about us. Thinking about us to the point of death by execution. That's humility. That is humility. Humbled himself by thinking beyond himself to others. And that's the ultimate example of humility. And Paul says, have this mind with all humility. Uh, and this is a difficult concept. Uh, we're very entitled people for, for the most part. We're very entitled people. We deserve certain things. We've worked hard. We have pride in what we have. And this carries on. It can carry on into the church a little bit. Uh, that we deserve to be treated and served in certain ways. That, that we, uh, others should treat us certain ways. And, and Paul says here, think of yourself less and others more. Think of yourself less and others more. Follow the example of Christ. Uh, think of this. Paul, uh, Christ, who had every right to be above the way he was being treated, humbled himself. Christ, who had every right to bring harsh judgment on those who were treating him the way that they were, he chose to treat them with gentleness. Now, ironically, we do the exact opposite of this because we who have no right to view ourselves above anyone else choose pride. And we who have no right to bring judgment choose to speak harshly to the people in our community. Exact opposite. And Paul says, follow the example of Jesus Christ, that he is our example. So that's humility and gentleness. That was the easy one. Let's, let's look at an even easier one. The second one is patience. Patience. Uh, how many naturally rock at being patient? As a toddler, you were just patient. Like, right out of the gate. Just patient. I've never met a patient toddler. I know mine aren't. When they want their drink, they want it now. Uh, patience is not something that is just kind of in us. It's not something that is natural to me. That's why I always say, if you see patience in me, it's because you're seeing Jesus in me. So I'm not a very patient person. Um, why is patience so important? 
I'm going to say something you already know, but the church is a collection of broken people. That's why you fit so well. That's why I fit so well. We're a collection of, of broken people. I've heard it said that there are no perfect churches and that if there were one, don't go because you'd mess it up. Have you heard that? We are, as a, as a group of people, we're broken. We're broken people. We're not a collection of perfect people. Spoiler alert, if you're new here. We're not a collection of perfect people, meaning the more you get to know the church community, the more you step in, the more you actually let people inside the walls that we, the more you let people in, the more you get to know them, including here at Stone Oak, the more you're going to rub shoulders with broken people. The more you're going to rub shoulders with, with people who are broken, with people that, in, uh, that are in, uh, struggling with sin, the more that's going to happen. And when that happens, guess what? The more patience is required. That's why patience is so huge. Um, there's a tendency in the church, and statistics bear this out a little bit, that we can have this tendency that when, when things are, get kind of tough in a church, the American church statistically will choose to hop to another. That we, we go to another uh, where as soon as it gets messy, we go somewhere else. And in, in, in our city, I, I think we could do this for, I think we could hop around churches for a long time without even going to the same one. And so some of us do this so much that you're never known and you never know. And there's no community there. And so there's no patience required in that. But if you were to get in a community, Paul says, be patient with others. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that they're being patient with us too. But patience is required. Um, the third one is bearing with one another in love. In, in love, not obligation, not with much whining, not with much complaining or gossiping or whatever, but in love. So here's a great question. What is love calling me to do in this situation? It's a great question for you to just ask yourself as you get in community with people, what is love calling me to do in this situation? Paul says, bear with each other in love. And church, I honest, honestly, I need this. I need a community like this. I need a community where, where we come around each other in love and we walk out our calling with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Let's keep going, though. Verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So why are we to walk out our calling? Why are we to treat each other with humility, gentleness, patience, and love? Unity. Unity. That's where this is headed. Unity. Um, so let's look at a couple things. So things. Paul says, be eager for unity. Be eager, not passive for it, not passively hoping that one day we'll be a united church, not passively hoping that the unity we have right now will continue. This is not a passive thing. It's eager. And what is it eager for? It's eager to maintain unity, eager to maintain. This is weird because typically we're not very excited about maintenance. When is the last time you have geeked out and have been so excited about your oil change? 
It's not something that we are wired with. But Paul says here, be eager to maintain, be eager for maintenance. Notice, too, he doesn't say be eager to experience unity or be eager to enjoy unity. Um, He says, be eager to maintain it. Again, not passive, but active. Be eager to maintain it. Um, In other words, we'll, we'll think of it like this. You're called to be a part of the maintenance crew. You're part, you're, you are called to be a part of the maintenance crew, and as that sinks in, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with that in your world? If this is your community, how are you doing with that? Are you eager to maintain unity here? Because um, it's not enough to simply just not add to disunity, but it's actively maintaining unity, and this is huge. And I, are you, well... I want you to see something. I was going to say it's subtle, but it's not. Um, verse 4. Uh, verse 4 says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So I'm going to help you with it if you don't see it. Is he trying to tell us something? Is he trying to say something? Uh, How many ones is that? Is it six, seven? So seven ones in one sentence. I think he has something he's trying to tell us. That we are one, one in Christ, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, one God. What does that mean? That we are one in Christ. This is unity. And something else we see here is that the Holy Spirit brings unity. It says there is one body and one spirit. We see that the Son brings unity, that there is one Lord. We see that the Father brings unity, and that there is one God and Father of all. Um, In other words, our unity is tied to God himself, to the Trinity itself, um, that we're tied to it, that it is therefore unbreakable and eternal. Um, I've heard it said like this. And this quote might actually, you might disagree with it. Just warning. Uh, The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is more possible, or it is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Some of you right off the bat are going, I don't think I can buy that. I see church splitting, church splits like all the time. How could that be? Okay, you ready for a stat? This is a really sad stat. Um, According to the statistics of last year, uh, an average of 50 churches split every day in the United States. Statistically, that's the average. That an average of 50 churches a day split. 50 churches a day. Um, if we're rooted in God himself and we're indestructible as a church, how could that be? How could that be? Because unfortunately, the en- enemy has been able to run wild. Um, unfortunately, and let me just say this, an average of 10 churches are started every day. That's good news. 10 churches are started every day and 50 split. 
So that means we literally split five times faster than we start them. Which that is, it's almost as though Paul knew that we would need this. Um, Let me say two things before we move on. Uh, One is the church is ultimately unified and will never be broken. No matter what we may go through, the painful moments that we might be in right now, no matter what fractures that we have right now, uh, our promise in Christ is that we are united in that one day. The promise through Christ is we will be one and eternally unified in him. And Christ is going to make this right. So that's number one. Number two, um, we just need to be honest and we need to repent for our divisiveness. The problem's not them, it's us. And, and we need to repent for our divisiveness. Those moments when we allow pride and um, how about the self-promoting to just cloud us and bring disunity into our church. The, the moments when we get so caught up in, in what's going on that we say, do things that we instantly, we want those words back. Uh, we need to be repentant. We need to see more of that repentant attitude in the church, but more than that, the world needs to see us having that kind of attitude as well. Um, For a moment, I want us to take a look at unity. What does unity look like in the church? What does unity specifically look like in this church? And on the other side, what does disunity look like? I'm a bad news first kind of guy, so let's start with disunity. Let's be honest, most of the disunity that we experience in the church or in a Christian community is a direct result of our mouths, of our tongues, of what we say. James tells us that, we see it. The Bible doesn't have to tell us that. We can look at our life and and see that. And most of it comes from a result of our tongue, um, slander, gossip, those underhanded comments that that aren't like real bad, but they make that person seem a little smaller and they make us seem just a little bigger. You know what I mean? Like it's those, those kind of comments. Uh, so if you've been in the church for any amount of time, uh, there's something sad that I think most of us have learned and that is we know how to spiritualize this. We know how to make disunity look good. We know how, we know how to make disunity look like as though Paul is telling us, be not united. Like, we know how to do that. Um, we, we know how to make prayer requests turn into, like, subtle gossip sessions, you know? Um, we know how to make comments that we need to make with voices lower, looking around, make sure no one sees it. Like, we know how to do that, and we know how to do that in a way that isn't outright sinful. We make it look... It's sinful. It's, it's just... It's, it's those... Okay... Those subtle emails. Um, it's the subtle Facebook posts. Uh, it's, it's, it's the passive-aggressive comments. We know how to do this. We know how to play this game. And all of that has, is just incredible at creating disunity in a church in any community, but especially in the church. And all of these things stem from that one thing. It's that thinking of yourself or making others uh, look a little less than yourself. It's, it's self-promoting. It's, let's just be honest, it's pride. 
It's, it's pride. It, it flows out of this. It's exactly the opposite. Paul says humility, gentleness, patience, love. Let's take the opposites of those, and that's what gives us our state of disunity. Now, I started with the bad news because I want to tell you some good news. Let's, let's look at some examples of unity. Uh, not just in the church, but in this church. Um, unity is seen in our setup and teardown team. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I remember seeing a man who was, who was on his knees hammering a stake into the ground to put up one of our signs. This man is a, um, he's high up in his company. He has hundreds of employees reporting to him. Uh, he's, he's very successful. He's a successful businessman. And I see him on his knees hammering the stake in while this college student is holding the tools. And they're just together, putting this, where else does that happen but in the church? That's an example of unity, of coming together, not thinking of yourself above or beyond any of those things, but, but coming together, working together. That's unity. How about this one? Our unity is seen in our children's ministry every week. I say this often. It's my favorite part of our church. Uh, every week. So we, we heard humility, gentleness, patience. Is there any other place that it's shown more than in that gym over there? I mean, have you met a, a, a toddler? Patience is required. Patience is required. Um, that is unity. Not thinking of yourself like, oh, I'm entitled to not do that. Like, you have that entitled, no, no, no. We come together and we serve each other. That's unity. Uh, unity is every time that one of us chooses to have a difficult conversation when it would have been easier to keep our mouth shut or to walk away. But instead, because of love, we step up and we have an awkward conversation. Those awkward conversations are moments of worship. That's unity. When we put ourselves aside and we step in and we lean in to community. And hear me, unity is not uniformity. We've said this before, but unity does not mean we all look the same, act the same, think the same, dress the same. That's not unity. That's creepy, and it's, it's like every cult has that, okay? That's not unity. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is diversity with humility, gentleness, patience, and love, and that's what I want to be a part of. That's honestly what I want to be eager to maintain. I am eager to maintain that. Um, so let me call out an elephant in the room. Ready? You're going to fail at this. Spoiler alert, you're going to fail at this. I'm going, there are going to be moments when things are going to go out of your mouth and you're going to want them back. You can't have them. And they're just going to be gone and you're going to, <clears throat> there's going to be moments when you get caught up and you are actively creating disunity. Like I've seen that in my life. Like, I'm like, I actively created that disunity. Like, that was all me, all this guy. Like, there's going to be moments like that um, when you will fail at this, and, and others are going to fail you, as you know this. Um, so let's look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean, the measure of Christ's gift? Um, grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, Let's, let's think back last week. So we talked about the mystery of Christ, and, and Paul reminded us, he prayed that we would know what? The breadth, the width, 
the, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. Do you remember that? And we talked about what does that mean? That means that it is immeasurable. It is beyond measure. The love of Christ is beyond measure. Uh, so if church grace is given to us according to the immeasurable gift of Christ, what does that say about grace? Immeasurable. Immeasurable grace is given to you in Christ. And how amazing is that? That in those moments where disunity shows its less than attractive face, there is grace. And then what do we do? Church, we're eager to maintain unity. There's grace, and now we seek to maintain unity. Um, this means that we speak truth and love, that we pray for each other. This means that we ask ourselves, what does love require that I do in this situation? Um, this means that we put others before ourselves. That's really what it comes down to, honestly, is putting others before ourselves. Because if you do that, a lot of these things fall right in line, like Jesus said. Love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of these things fall into place. Um, if you're here and right now, this is your reality. You're in a place where you can see tangibly disunity in your life. You're here in this church, and maybe there's disunity right now. You feel like someone has sinned against you. And maybe you wouldn't call it sin, but maybe someone is just making you mad. Whatever verbiage you want to put around it. Um, maybe that's you. Here's, don't be passive. Uh, don't be a passive victim. You're not a passive victim. Don't be a passive Instead, be eager to maintain unity. I want you to write this down, this reference, if that's you. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Yeah, there it is. Um, I have no time to walk through this this morning with you. But if that is you, this text does a beautiful job. Jesus says, if someone sins against you, do this. It's like a roadmap for us. So if that is you, if that's where you are um, this week, take a look at this and maybe start putting this into practice. Maybe start putting this into pr practice as we eagerly seek to maintain unity. Um, Paul says, you're called by God, called by God as a child to be part of his people. And now we, we walk that out. We live it out by striving to maintain unity through Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And this is huge for us to see. Uh, we're going to end our time this morning by moving around, not physically, um, but in our text. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. You don't have to go there. I am going to put it on the screen, but if you want to follow with me, uh, I invite you to do that. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that, that was written by Paul, again, to a church in the city in, uh, of Corinth. I want you to listen to this, verse 18. It says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. They did it back then too. I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Let's look at verse 20. Uh, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So again, uh, like our letter, Paul's addressing disunity. There's divisions in the church, and Paul is directing them to what? To the Lord's Supper, to communion. Why? 
Why would he do that? Because at the communion table, hear me, we are all the same. We are all the same. We are all on the same level as we remember our Savior in communion. We're all in the same, no matter, as you take the bread and the cup, you have nothing that separates you from anyone else. You have Christ. You have your, your job, your, your, your status, your, your relationship, your marriage, your background, your bank, nothing. None of that matters because at the table, we are one in Christ. We are one. We stand as one body, and communion points us to that, that not only does it remind us that Christ died for us, that he gave his life for us, not only does it remind us that we are a part of the family of God, um, it reminds us that we're one in Jesus, that we're one in Christ. Listen to this, uh, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then listen to this, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, same language as our text in Ephesians, uh, will be guilty concerning the, the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul says, before we as a church approach communion, before we as a church worship through communion, Paul says, take a moment, pray, confess, repent, reflect. Take a moment. Um, and so what I'd like for us to do is to do just that. We're going to take communion together, but for a couple minutes, most of us are, we live pretty busy lives and we don't have moments like this. And I just want to give one of those moments to you. Uh, so for a couple minutes, I want to give you a chance to pray. Uh, maybe you're sitting next to your family or friends or someone you know, and you would like to pray with them. We'd love that use this time for that. Um, but I want to invite you to pray and just reflect. And, and here's what, ask the Lord, is there anything you want to reveal in my life? Is there anything you want to reveal in my life in these moments? And so as John Mark plays, um, let's just take a moment to pray together. <laughs> 